everyone. Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and our very special guest, Karen Swallow-Prior. Karen and Heidi, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Hello. Thanks, David. We're here to discuss Sense and Sensibility as we have been for the last, I don't know, four or five episodes. We're going to finish discussing Volume 2, um, Chapters 8 through 14. Um, those of you that you know, have to do a little math. I'll leave that to you. But basically, I think you pretty much know where we're going. Um, I'm going to summarize here in a second those cha- those sections, those chapters in that section, because a lot happens here. And a couple of people sent me messages saying it's disorienting when we just dive right in in a book like this, because there are a lot of chapters and a lot is happening, which is funny because people said that nothing happens in this book. So I like getting both of those comments at the same time. Uh, I want to remind people, if you want to join the conversation, you can head over to Facebook and join the Close Reads podcast discussion groups. You just type that into the search bar, the group will show up and you can ask to join and we will we'll let you in. It is a private group, but you know, we have very mellow guard dogs, so we will let you in <laughs> to join the conversation. There's been lots of good conversation and, and dialogue about this book. Before we dive into our conversation here on the show, though, I want to remind you about our friends over at Escondido Tutorial Services. As they remind us, our culture needs more fine minds who have an understanding of the great ideas of Western Civ. The dying art of civil discourse is one that needs much practice and finesse, and Twitter isn't going to do the job. Your junior high and high school students can hone this art through studying with 25-year veteran great books tutor Fritz Henrichs. His five-year study of the great books of the Western world includes works by Homer and Plato and Augustine and Calvin and Shakespeare and Dante and Chaucer and all the others. Uh, well, I guess maybe not all of them, but many others. Each week, students meet for a two-hour session discussing the reading and learning to dialogue with one another. They're required to write papers several times a semester as well. And there's an opportunity for two free years of classical Greek uh, for students who are enrolled in grade books two and three, while there's free Shakespeare courses that accompanies year, year four. Fifth-year students write two 3,600-word papers and present them in Escondido or online, answering questions from Mr. Henricks and the assembled fellow students. Those interested can also join a four-day gathering each June, which is full of debate, readers' theater, singing, dancing, and fantastic fellowship. Guided by the joyful Christian wisdom of Mr. Hendricks and the great books, join a conversation full of truth, justice, love, and beauty. To find more how you can join this great conversation, please visit the Escondido Tutorial Service website today at gbt.org. Again, that's the letter G, the letter B, the letter T.org. So thanks to Mr. Henricks and Escondido for, for sponsoring Close Reads and helping us do the show this month. Um, let's, let's start here. Because someone asked a really interesting question online. This, comes, or this question is at least inspired by our friend Jesse, who's a longtime reader, regular commenter on the Facebook, on the Facebook group. And, and I, Jesse, I don't have your exact wording. I couldn't find the exact comment. But your question at least sparked a question for me. Uh, in paraphrasing your question, I should have written it down. But the question is this. When thinking about Sense and Sensibility, which character bears the essence of the book? Or, or if we're going to understand this book, whose character do we most have to um, get at the essence of that person? Uh, we have Eleanor and Marianne and many other characters in this book. But it didn't. she asked an interesting question that which of those two characters is the essence of the book? Or is there someone else? Is there someone else who maybe isn't quite as um, obvious or quite who, who, who doesn't you know, have as many speaking lines, so to speak, or uh, who doesn't, whose perspective, whose point of view isn't, uh, doesn't carry as much weight, but still bears the essence of the book itself? Karen, I'm going to turn to you and ask you what you think of that. Do you think that it's one of the obvious characters? Do you think it's Eleanor or Marianne that is the essence of this book or kind of carries the core of the book? Well, I do think that it is Eleanor's perspective that is communicated most often in the book. I mean, it's mm-hmm. tricky because we also have, if, it, if, if I were to give it a, a second choice, it would be the narrator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the narrator, who is third person, um, does often narrate, uh, there's a, from, from, you know, sort of this, um, ironic satirical point of view that makes fun of everyone but we most (laughs) including itself right i mean i think we i think the perspective that we see most often through the narration is eleanor's and i think that even though she is not perfect um 
she is the model that the that the narrative is trying to uphold. The model that needs a, some growth, but um, she is the main character. Hmm. Okay, Heidi. So Karen says the narrator, but Eleanor is definitely the point of view, the, the perspective that kind of bears the narrative. When we talk, is that is that what how you how you think about the uh, the idea of essence? Because what I was trying to figure out is was Jesse's question or her comment, what such as she worded it, was it getting at were those the same ideas? Like this idea of sort of pushing the narrative forward and and um, driving driving things forward, driving sort of carrying the most of, or at least presenting most of the ideas. Is that the same thing as bearing the essence of the story? Oh, that's a great. I I found this a really, really interesting question for a couple of reasons. One is because I completely agree with Karen that it is Eleanor's eyes that we're mostly behind in looking at this story. And I absolutely agree also that Eleanor is held up within the world of the novel as an ideal type. Um Modern conversations about this novel, though, tend to be more either or because Marianne's what is considered folly within the novel is no longer (laughs) widely considered to be folly within modern society. It's perfectly acceptable for young women to show their feelings and to ask for attention to be on them and to be like Marianne is, whereas... In this Regency society, it wasn't, that is not the case. And so I want to posit then a third option, which is the world, the society surrounding and within this novel, Regency England. It is so important for modern readers uh, to view what's going on within this novel through the lens of the society in which it occurred. I'm I'm curious, and and um, maybe you'll get some feedback on this, or um, and I I, ho- I hope so. But are do modern readers, especially younger readers, um, really read this and and feel as though they are supposed that, that Mary Ann is being portrayed in a positive way, or is there a little, or is there some sympathy, but still recognition that she's not being held up as a norm? I would, I would be very curious to hear from um, any readers who are, who are, who really sincerely believe that Mary Ann's perspective is, um, is correct. And I'm, I, I mean, I, because I believe what you're saying, Heidi. And I, but I, now it's raising the question in me: How do these how do these readers who are immersed in this kind of current worldview respond to Marianne and to you know her romanticism and narcissism and so forth? Right, right. I think that that's a really good question, and I've been thinking about that a lot this week, and uh, hearing and seeing some of the discussions about these two characters. Uh, that that have taken place on the close reads in personal conversations I've had about this novel lately. And there is a sense of that Austin is portraying two equal sides, mm. right? That Marianne might be a little self-absorbed and, and melodramatic. Um, but on the other hand, Eleanor is... Um, maybe too restrained and she doesn't express herself enough and she's overlooked and she's not honest about what she's feeling and thinking. Um, And so that tends to be from my experience, which again is not scholarly or academic, but purely personal. That tends to be my experience for modern readers. Now, I don't think that's Austin's perspective at all. I think Eleanor is an ideal type for her. So it is interesting to see these conversations within the modern landscape, especially as people talk about their own personalities too. I relate more to Marianne. I'm more of an Eleanor, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and then the conversation kind of goes off from there. Hmm. Before we go any further, I want to I want to kind of put a pin in that concept of whether Eleanor is an ideal type um, for for Jane Austen. And I do want to go ahead and summarize some of what happened here. I wanted to to wait a second and use what we just talked about as a bit of a prelude for the show. But basically we, from chapter 
volume two, chapter eight through the end of volume two that we read, quite a bit happens. And it begins after uh, all the drama with Eleanor and Marianne, you know, finding out the truth. Um, well, at least, well, I guess not finding out the truth, but sort of uh, being, finding out that they're not, that what, what they thought was going to happen isn't, isn't going to happen in the, in the previous section. In chapter seven, um, well, it's chapter eight, rather, I'm sorry. Uh, that's where Mrs. Jennings tries to comfort Marianne, but basically says everything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and then Cur- Colonel Brandon arrives and tells Eleanor that he has he has heard what happened, what Willoughby did to Marianne, and Eleanor confirms it. And then in chapter nine, um, Marianne goes around trying to avoid Mrs. Jennings, talking about how she cannot feel things. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then Mrs. Dashwood writes a letter to them, which is assuming that Marianne is soon going to marry Willoughby, um, which of course is not the case. And then Colonel Brandon visits and we get the long, um, mm-hmm. you know, Marianne disappears and then Brandon talks to Eleanor and reveals this long story about Colonel Brandon's own experience um, with his his sister, I think it is, and then his his niece who um, who he was left with after his sister died of tuberculosis, and then how that connects to to Willoughby, and and then how that connects to Willoughby leading Marianne and and so forth. Um, that's that's the sort of the of the longer chapter I think in the section, um, and Colonel Brandon says that he he hopes the story will sort of help Marianne process things uh, better because she then is in a better position or is going to is sort of in a better better state socially than um, Eliza Williams, his niece. Um, is his niece right? Am I remembering that correctly? Well. It's it's a little confusing. So Colonel, it's Colonel Brandon's not sister, but sister-in-law because it was That's his right. former right. lover who his brother right. married, right. right? Right, right. Which is important later because Mar- because it turns out that Colonel Brandon has this sort of heartbreaking romantic story mm. that intrigues Marianne. Right, right. So it, that's right. It's his. It is his sister, but also his. <laughs> his sister-in-law. <laughs> so right. Thank you for correcting me there. Then in chapter. Uh, 10 we get well then he, he does by the way he does say that eliza is living out in the country having given birth to willoughby's illegitimate child um mm-hmm. that's that's a key point that i, I shouldn't forget uh chapter 10 <laughs> is is the uh is the bit where um eleanor explains the story to to um colonel brandon and then marianne kind of softens in her attitude or views to to colonel brandon um and everyone else kind of shares in their united disgust at Willoughby's behavior and says all the things that they want to do to him and how they're not going to be friends anymore, um, except maybe when it's beneficial to them. And Marianne, on hearing that Willoughby ended up did did end up getting married, gets very sad. Lucy and Anne uh, Steele arrive to stay at the Middletons, which creates all kind of drama for the last four chapters of the section. Um, <laughs> Uh, in chapter 11, that's where Eleanor and Marianne are in the jewelry shop and they, they bump into their half-brother, John, um, who reveals that he's been in town and really, 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 really did want to visit them, but for various reasons, couldn't. And he's very apologetic and he'll eventually do that. He promises. Uh, they run into someone else in the, in the shop that turns out to be... Uh, later on, we find out it's Robert Farrar's. Uh, chapter 12 is... There's lots of Fanny there. Fanny, Fanny Dashwood being so encouraging to her sisters-in-law. Um, and these chapters are some of my favorite chapters as far as just how mean Eleanor or Jane Austen, or maybe a little bit of both gets to some of these characters, the, the little digs that, that she gets into, <laughs> into the, the selfishness of these people and how matter of fact she presents it is, it's some of the best writing in the book, I think. Um, and Edward, this is where in chapter 12, Edward calls on Eleanor and Marianne while they're out. Um, and Fanny decides that she really needs to get to know Miss uh, Lady Middleton, and she thinks that just goes super well. Um, and uh, <laughs> the discussion, though, is not so good when the men out of the room <laughs> is is uh, they talk about how tall people are, I, I believe, which which oh, is um, right. super um, enlightening and inspiring. And then, um, and then, the, and then in chapter, I mean, if, you, if I'm skipping anything that you think is really important, I mean, a lot of this is various conversations as the fallout of all these various relationships. Um, 13 
is where Eleanor talks, feels that she is relieved that she has escaped having Mrs. Ferrars as a mother-in-law because in 12, she met Mrs. Ferrars and it didn't go super well. She wasn't super impressed. Uh, but Lucy in that chapter does call on Eleanor and expresses how happy she is that Mrs. Farrar appeared to take a liking to her. And while she's there and they're chatting and um, Lucy is, you know, making Eleanor annoyed, uh, Edward suddenly arrives and it gets super awkward. And Marianne comes in and it gets even more awkward because when Marianne arrives, things tend to get extra awkward. Um, and then Edward mortified leaves, um, which brings up a question I want to ask everything. later part of that <laughs> <laughs> and then chapter 14 uh is where they find out uh, Char- charlotte palmer gives birth to a son and mrs jennings spends as much time with the daughter and therefore eleanor and marianne spend most of their days at the middletons although lady middleton um doesn't like her doesn't like them because they don't aren't particularly flattering um mm-hmm. and uh let's see what else happens there there's the bit with uh john and fanny dashwood's house and um, let's see what else needs. They throw, they throw the party. They throw the party mm-hmm. where they meet where Eleanor and Robert meet Robert Ferrars, who is Edward's brother. Um, and they talk about cottages and how wonderful cottages are, and how Robert Ferrar thinks everyone should build a cottage. And it seems like he's pandering. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, John Dashwood suggests that they invite Eleanor and Marianne to stay with them for a short time as a way of honoring his promise to Henry Dashwood to look after them. But Fanny refuses on the grounds that she's already decided in that moment, just at that second, to invite the Steels, which makes... <laughs> and then suggests that the next year or in a future year, they invite Eleanor and Marianne. And that makes John feel better because um, he suspects that eventually they'll come as... Uh, that Eleanor will be married to to uh, Colonel Brandon. And that's where the section ends. <clears throat> so there's a couple things we can focus on here. We can focus on the Colonel Brandon Willoughby extended you know, all that extended drama there and what it, and what it means. And we can also focus on some of these various uh, parties and conversations that are happening. But the, that question that I asked earlier that, that um, Jesse brought up about kind of whose perspective is at the essence of the story ties into another, another question that I have about characterization, because as I was reading about Colonel Brandon and his various stories and his awkwardness and Ed- or, and then Edward's awkwardness when he comes in and how basically everyone's really awkward and <laughs> creating all kinds of awkwardness and drama, uh, except, except Eleanor, who seems very in control of herself. Um, I started thinking about the question of, of what in Jane, in these, in this book anyway, is makes for the right sort of man. Hmm. Because we have all these different characters who at various times, are presented in some sort of descriptive way through the point of view of a character as being the ideal man. We have earlier on, we've talked about how from Marianne's perspective, Willoughby's this ideal man, right? He's sort of got this, this poetic romanticism about him. He's very handsome and, you know, likes art and all that kind of stuff. And then at other times, Edward's sort of presented in that way. And Colonel Brandon by some people is sort of presented in that way. And, and, but then in the next scene, they're not at all the way that their people think they are. And I, and I started wondering, are any of these men actually, <laughs> actually held up as worthy characters for, for, for any of these characters? Um, and it could, could it be that, that the lack of worthiness in those characters is more what's at the essence of the story? Um, that maybe the whole point is that no one's really worthy for anybody. So is there, I guess let's go back to that first bit there. Is there a male character in this story who is an ideal man? Is there one character so far that is being held up as an ideal male character for, for, um, for any, for say for, for Eleanor or for Marianne who are, who are ostensibly our protagonists and who we're supposed to root for to end up with a man. I think, Heidi, what do you think of that? I'll go uh, first. I, so that very question is has created so many conversations over the centuries since this particular novel was published. Um, it still continues to be debated the ending of this novel and how to su- some people feel so unsatisfied mm-hmm. with the matches that come from this novel from this particular novel. So not just I mean, and there's there's some debate about you know about this with other non Mansfield Park, for example. But it is this novel that gets people 
conversing about that very question that you have uh, because, and we keep comparing it to Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice is so satisfying at the end. Everybody gets their comeuppance. There's these two equally matched couples. And this one feels a little more like Midsummer Night's Dream in which somebody, they all end up married and they all seem pretty happy, but like they're almost a little bit interchangeable to a certain extent. So The, the men are... Yeah, or the couples. Oh, the couples, okay. The couples themselves. And that's kind of the whole, you know, deeper contemplation of Midsummer Night's Dream. Whereas in this novel, I do think that Austin intended for it to be a satisfying ending for these couples. And again, that goes to what I posited earlier, that there are some cultural uh, uh, understandings that we need to have. You know, age difference was actually considered to be a good thing. Marianne would be really cared for by an older man. Whereas modern readers tend to see how this novel ends as Oh, really? She ended up with him? So (laughs) that question of the ideal man is a contemplation of Austin in the modern world. But I I think it's lovely. I I do have to say Edward's not my favorite Austin hero. I don't see him necessarily as equal in character to Eleanor. But that's personal opinion for me. And so I'm not going to put that forward as like a scholarly interpretation. Karen, do you agree with this? Because... The idea of whether the, the 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 individuals within these couples are equal is kind of an interesting concept uh, that Jane Austen seems to be playing with. Well, I, I think it's kind of the wrong question um, because <laughs> I think, or at least at least the wrong term, because I actually I think this entire novel is anti idealism. Mm. Um, so there aren't supposed to be any ideal characters, at least in, in, I mean, we, we might use that in in its actual sense of Mm -hmm. an ideal being almost, almost perfect, you know, like black Mm -hmm. and white characters. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the whole novel is trying to advance a notion of realism, which is that there are no ideal suitors. There are, you know, you can't be an ideal person of sense or an ideal person of sensibility like like we need a mixture um because reality is a mixture of strengths and weaknesses and sense Mm. and sensibility um and so i think this novel um in in that way it it is more if it's if its program is kind of a dose of realism then these marriages end up being perfectly uh, ideal ideal for, for that for that yeah. purpose um yeah, yeah. so yeah was um yeah go ahead well so do you think that i mean do you think that she's actively trying to well let me ask you this do you find the do you find any of the male characters in this book to be um appealing in a in a, in the way that you know we traditionally think of you know um you know, male protagonists in a, in a romantic. Yeah. Book. Like a romantic hero kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Either of you, either of you, I'm, I'm curious about this. Yeah, go ahead, Heidi. I don't know. I know it's a hard question. I mean, not the same way that, I mean, every, I don't know. I don't know a single woman, literary woman who doesn't idealize Mr. Darcy in some way, like not a single one. So that is. Unless it's Karen and we're I'm, about to I mean, find I'm out. I'm sure there's going to be. <laughs> I know. I'm sure there's going to be a ton of comments on Facebook this week. I'm I'm the one that never liked Darcy, and I that's that's great. So, um, <laughs> but no, no, these are not. I mean, you're Karen's right. The dashing romantic hero is Willoughby, and he's undercut. He's subverted. He's disqualified. He's a villain. So. That then leaves us with the question of, as you pointed out, David, what is it that makes a man? What kind of a man can make a woman happy? And as and and Austin accepts the terms of the world she lives in, and she she pokes fun at it, but she doesn't have Marianne running off right. with Willoughby and them like going into the sunset because he's the romantic hero, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So they find each of them finds what works within their society to make a happy life, the good life. But I, I agree that we're not talking about dashing ideal 
um, you know, strong, handsome, silent, dark-haired, romantic heroes. That's Willoughby, <laughs> and he's done for. So the reason I the reason I bring this up is because in some ways it it if it's true that there's not really that hero there, then what it does is it kind of creates sort of dissonance, right, in their pursuit yes. of of sort of romantic happiness, right? Like if if and if 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 we have been told that Willoughby is that kind of hero, but really that hero doesn't exist because look at Willoughby. But then Mary, you know, then then this constant pursuit that everyone is is after that sort of relationship seems impossible, right? Like that's sort of the the principle that's put down. But then that, in some ways, that becomes the stakes of the book. But it also makes it feel um, like they're they're on a fool's errand. Is that right? Well, I don't know. I I mean, maybe I think what Austin is contemplating, and, and Karen, I really want you to speak to this. Um, is what is it that makes happy life then? Is it that all of your ideals are met or is it marriage to a good man who can provide for you and who loves you, right? Like that's that kind of contemplation of happiness within the terms of the world in which we live. I think to a certain extent, every happily married person has to wrestle with that, right? I think what this book is about is that being happy is having children that are tall. I think that's really what it is. Karen, go ahead. No, I mean, this isn't... All of us, I mean, it's an Um, Mm anti-romance. And so... So, but what does that mean in terms of how we should read it, in terms of how we should uh, take what we're used to reading in, in terms of expectations and stakes and and plot even and flips that upside down should we read it differently and have different sets of expectations or well i'll just leave it there yeah i mean well what are we reading i mean i don't know like aren't we asking it does yeah i i do um lament sometimes when i see the memes or the conversations about you know the the favorite male character in Austin or whatever. I mean, like that is not even what the novels are about. And I know there's just a lot of baggage around it and the films don't help. And they are love stories at the center of the stories, but um, this is not what the novels are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, Even, you know, even, even Darcy is kind of a prig. Um, Uh He grows and changes. um, And he, you know, he is a, he is probably one of the um, better heroes um in an austin novel and and most admirable i guess um he's also rich and has a large library so that's (laughs) nice Um, who wouldn't want to live at pemberley um but um yeah i i think it's what heidi said is great that this is i mean this is austin is showing how the good life is achieved not through fanciful, unrealistic ideals, but through um, accepting reality as it is and finding the, you know, the navigating that on the best terms possible, which is not a bad thing. That is mm-hmm. a good thing. That is mm-hmm. what, that's what the good life is. Mm. So do you, there's that. There's this line at the beginning of uh, twelve that I really like in the second paragraph, where it's talking about Lady Middleton and Mrs. Dashwood, and it says there was a kind of cold-hearted selfishness on both sides, which mutually <laughs> attracted them, and they sympathized with each other in an insipid propriety of demeanor and a general want <laughs> of understanding. <laughs> um, and it's so matter-of-factly presented that it, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that I kept thinking of is: is the book as cynical as all that about? about um what people's real motives are (laughs) well i actually had this passage marked so i'm so glad you read it because going back to the earlier part of the conversation we were talking about sort of the essence of the novel um this is clearly the narrator right Mm -hmm. this is this Mm -hmm. is the narrator's objective you know view of these characters speaking in the narrator's words um this isn't these it's not free and direct discourse it's not eleanor's perspective this is the narrator telling us about these two um mm-hmm. and i think that is kind of i mean this is a satire it's a comedy of manners 
Um, and so that is the mode that we get throughout. And, and so I think the endings are along those lines as well. We haven't gotten to the end yet, but it is, it is interesting to note um, the, the final note that the book closes on, which is not about the marriages. So, mm-hmm. This idea of cynicism has been in my head and, and that's one of the reasons why I brought that up. And, and I think it seems to be tied into everything that we're talking about here because you said it's an anti-romance. You said that there are no ideal characters. There are barely characters, it seems like, worthy of, of imitation. Um, and so it does seem like a fundamentally um, cynical perspective that we're getting here. No, 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 no. What you call pessimism, Austin and I call realism. (laughs) We're not pessimists, we're realists. (laughs) And Marianne is the optimist, right? (laughs) I mean, just using using those, I mean, but I think that is the ongoing sort of battle. Is it pessimistic to be realistic? (laughs) Yeah, Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. or cynical. Um, I think she's just being realistic in a funny way. Hmm. Does that so? Does that raise? Does that raise the stakes or lower them? <laughs> Just changes the conversation, right? And yeah. that's the thing. The thing that thing that thing that Marianne is going through as we're in the section that we read this week. That's mm-hmm. and that's also what Eleanor is contemplating too, because as as we've talked about for several weeks the thing at stake is not their hearts it is mm-hmm. literally like food on the table right they have this is an economic system and marriage is 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 part of that economic system they can't go out and get a good job and work their way up the corporate ladder they must be taken care of by a man and their father is dead so what so then the question is not Am I going to find is is not the same one Marianne is asking, and I think that's what Karen's getting at, and I agree. What what Austin keeps doing, and it's so hard for modern romantic <laughs> readers to get that, is to say this is an economic question as well as a romantic one. So, at what point then on this continuum do head and heart meet? Mm-hmm. Like best case scenario is you meet a good man who can take care of you and who actually loves you right so and that's i don't i don't think austin would say that cynical she'd just say like that's that's those are the terms mm-hmm. yeah. all right what what was it it was a few um episodes ago where we talked about the cot what at the cottage not being warm or something that was um there was a yeah. great line in there you know i mean yeah you you've got to have heat and food and 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 that's to it's silly um, to it, it, it's foolish or worse to to deny that reality. So does so it seems like in many ways we are meant to, or at least over this over the the, the centuries, readers have come to love Marianne and uh, and Eleanor because they don't play the game, like they don't pander as. As I mentioned earlier, that's one of the reasons why, what is it, uh, Mrs. Ferrars or Lady Middleton or someone didn't particularly like Eleanor is because she didn't pander to her. They don't, mm-hmm. you know, the people who could help them, they could, you know, they could pander to them and ask for help and beg, so to speak, and do all the things that would make things easier for them, but they don't do that. Um, whereas, you know, uh, uh, Lucy Steele, for example, is very much playing the game. But does that, Mm-hmm. So it does that, and then she's presented in a way that kind of mocks her playing the game. And we're sort of, it seems, meant to respect that Eleanor doesn't play the game. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what Austin is showing. I mean, as Heidi said earlier, Austin accepts the reality of the world that she exists in on its terms, mm-hmm. but also sees it. You know, is putting forth a vision. Um, where she, you know, it's not either or. Yes, you have to be wise and sensible and marry someone who can put food on the table, but you can. You also don't have to give up on happiness. You don't have to give up on the good life in order to do that. You don't have to become a fool um, or, you know, uh, a Lucy Steele in order to do that. So she's, she's, in that sense, there is kind of an ideal. She's accepting the world on its terms, um, but saying, you know, the, these, the terms it offers are better 
than most people are willing to see and um, and strive toward. Mm. Right. Well, and that also is is where virtue comes in, and mm. the and Austin's heroines, Austin's female protagonists, they are rewarded for their virtue. And that's the great reward of these novels is not, you know, that I got my great romantic hero, but that I was virtuous in the face of all of this foolishness and banality and all of this temptation to become cunning and deceitful and scheming and pandering. And, but they remained virtuous through that. And that's the difference between somebody like Marianne and somebody like Lucy Steele. So that even though Marianne is foolish uh, and romantic and melodramatic and all those things that we rightly say, you got to let that go, girl. At the same time, she maintains her purity of heart mm-hmm. and her virtue. And then she is thus rewarded with an equally virtuous man. And that's kind of the moral, that's where the moral world of Austin comes in contact with that economic world. That's the fairy tale ending for an Austin novel. It's not this, this, this great romance, but the reward of virtue. You know, that quote about how well-behaved women never make history, that would have, that would have not been on Austin's radar, right? It's well-behaved women. They follow these terms, not only of the economic system, but of the moral world in the face of all these temptations to fall. Mm-hmm. They maintain their virtue and then they are loved by a good man who can take care of them. And I love this line about um, Marianne and the reading for today after um, Eleanor tells her the story, you know, of, of Willoughby's history and his depravity and and sin and and it says and I don't have it right here, but it says that um, that Marianne um, that that it was more the drop in his character was mm. more painful to her than the loss of his love. Mm-hmm. And we you know we know how much the loss I mean I know so many well let me just it seems <laughs> 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 I think a lot of romantic women today would would still continue to lament the loss more than the character because they mm-hmm. you know so many women are like oh it, it really is about um about being loved someone by someone regardless of how bad their character is but marion that's a, a key moment of insight and character development for marion yeah, I, I was, think, I was just gonna say yeah i'm yeah. really glad so, yeah I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it does show in some ways the virtue that heidi's talking about but it also seems to show it seems to be a moment where she could go in so many different ways and the mm-hmm. choice that she makes sets the tone for so much of what happens the rest of the way for her. What, like what right. you, like the positioning of her, I guess of her heart, of her mind of, uh, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it positions her to respond to future decisions that she has to make or future scenarios in ways that um, she might, you know, you, you, one decision tends to lead to another. Right. Um, and, and that, yeah, I mean, the, the way you said it position it positions like her heart and her eyes and her mind so that now you know she sees Colonel Brandon differently mm-hmm. right I mean because she's kind of reoriented herself in the more the, the moral drama going on and so it's not it's not just the loss of Willoughby that makes it, it well it's not the loss of Willoughby that makes Brandon more attractive to her because because that's been a possibility all along but when she recognizes the bad character of willoughby then she's that she has a better understanding of how important character is and that poises her to appreciate it more in colonel brandon hmm. do you do you think that there's a moment like that for eleanor that we've run across so far where or is it more because we're in her head so much it's kind of a series of such decisions but is there a sort of crucial moment where um she has to make a decision that's going to determine a lot about how she about future decisions she makes (sighs) i know that's a really kind of a unfair question (laughs) to just to just say that to just drop it like that well i think that that question at Maybe that, and I, I haven't been able to articulate this even in my own head, but that's why Jesse's question that we talked about earlier was so interesting to me. Because as I looked at kind of this 
arc of character for Eleanor. She does grow. She does change. But I don't see, and I'm very willing to be corrected on this. So somebody changed my mind. Um, I don't, I don't see her going through kind of that metanoia, that sense of repentance, that climactic moment within the course of the novel that changes the who she is forever, the same way it does with Marianne with the loss of Willoughby. So I mean, maybe the closest would be having to bear up under Lucy Steele's kind of poisonous banality um, and and to maintain her integrity and her character in the face of that 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 woman's triumph over her. Um, but if that's the case, the novel doesn't seem to explore that. It seems pretty much a given. Like this is how Eleanor is going to respond. It doesn't kind of talk about this internal storm of overcoming, at least that's not how I read it. I don't know. Karen, what do you think about that question? Well, I think that um, the... Uh, the no, you... That's a good question. I don't think that <laughs> Eleanor Eleanor's character changes. Mm-hmm. Um, she's already you know as close to ideal as we get, but she does um, she does allow more room for emotion by the end of the of the novel um, and becomes a little bit less restrained as as appropriate, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I think that the movie makes that makes it like the the film, yeah, does that with her, right? It it kind of puts that that character arc into the film, and you kind of have to do that in a movie. It makes Eleanor or Marianne's sickness that turning point for her, and then she has a couple of scenes in which they they she kind of lets this flood of emotion out, and it feels very uh, cathartic to the to those of us who are watching, but I, it, it doesn't have that same thing in the, in the book. Hmm. It's interesting. There's that bit in 10 where it talks about how, <clears throat> well, first of all, there's that amazing paragraph where it's talking about Mrs. Palmer uh, being angry about Willoughby. And it says that she was determined to drop his acquaintance immediately. And she was very thankful. She had never, uh, never been acquainted with him at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she wished with all her heart, home magna was not so near cleveland but it did not signify for it was a great deal too far off to visit she hated him so much that she was resolved never to mention his name again and she should tell everybody she saw how good for nothing he was (laughs) i'm never going to mention him but i'm going to tell everybody how bad he is um but then it talks about how lady middleton was kind of you know she didn't really care too much and it says that um the common, polite, unconcern of Lady Middleton on the occasion was not happy relief to help Eleanor's spirits. And it says, oppressed as they often were by the clamorous kindness of the others. Mm-hmm. And there's something, there's a interest, to me, that's an interesting bit of characterization there for Eleanor, who, mm. who, in, who is, it's kind of her, her um, lack of interest in the, the clamorous kindness of others forces us to kind of decide to make a decision about what, how everyone else is interacting with them. Because if she decides, if she turns somehow grateful it will definitely make us feel differently about the characters, the other characters, but that she calls it an unkind, a clamorous kindness that she, she doesn't care that she doesn't, that bothers her. That forces us to, to, we kind of, we're going to do it the same way there. And in some ways, like it makes me, it, it, she feels, it makes her feel unkind in some ways to me. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Like she's not being generous herself that maybe, mm-hmm. maybe there, she's not, she's not allowing for the fact that maybe that some of these people in some ways do care in their own way. Mm-hmm. It makes her seem harsh, I suppose is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But that might just be me being, you know, unjust, um, kind of unkind to Eleanor given the circumstances. Well, it, I think you're putting your finger on some of Austin's brilliance in her writing as we see these characters, these secondary characters that have been so ridiculous and yet they are rallying around the sisters as they're going through this valley of the shadow, uh, Eleanor included, although they don't know that. 
And clamorous kindness is a brilliant little, <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, that's just a wonderful use of language because as you're, as you point out, we do know that they are kind. And by this time, we're grateful to them for that. Um, but at the same time, they're also clamorous. They are just really annoying and loud and <laughs> yeah, they get yeah. in the sisters' heads and they, they, they create chaos at a time when the sisters need peace, but they also need kindness. And so that's, I, I, I think that is just brilliant writing as you're pointing out. And yeah, you're right. Some of it, we, we do have to, as readers make, we make these judgments when we're reading Austin because as as we've we've all talked about in in this episode there is a narrator voice and there is Eleanor. Mm-hmm. And so this is narrator telling us how mm-hmm. a judgment that Eleanor is making upon them. And we as the readers are invited to make the same judgment as Eleanor mm-hmm. or make our own. So there are multiple threads of voices in this novel, which is, you know, Austin's brilliant writing. Yeah, when I was speaking of great sentences, just w- one of my favorite sentences in the reading for today is um, in chapter 12 after, um, well, Edward Edward has called um, while they're gone. And um, this is from Eleanor's perspective, but just as Eleanor was pleased that he had called and still more pleased that she had missed him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's just so much psychology <laughs> um, packed into that into that sentence. It's just so brilliantly written, um, and so and it and it's revealing of Eleanor's character. You know that she wants, she still wants Edward and wants his affection and love, but it was it would have been mortifying and awkward for her to for her to see him. So, <laughs> which and then ultimately come, you know, that sets up the future scene when he does show right. up at the exact wrong right. time. There are so many good lines in this section. There's that line about how when he's talking, when she's talking to John Dashwood and I think it's 11 or something, a man must pay for his convenience and it has cost me a vast deal of money. And then she says more <laughs> than you think it really intrinsically worth. And it's not even a question. She just kind of says it. And they're ostensibly they're talking about the house, but they're also talking about, you know, this concept of hmm. convenience. I love the, I love some of those converse. She's just so clever. Um, almost um, too clever. <laughs> um, so as we're talking here, I want to go back to this idea of the essences as we conclude, because we have, you know, one more volume left. We have the the last, the final third of the book. Um, and, you know, Colonel Brandon's coming more into focus. Edward uh, Farrar's is certainly you know, we've had this big awkward moment with him. So each of the sort of three main protagonists have had, male protagonists, I guess, male heroes have had this, uh, these various, each of them have had kind of a big awkward moment. Um, And, uh, and so we're kind of set up for the resolution, you know, kind of building toward the resolution of these various relationships and what, what role are these men going to play and how's, how are things going to shake out? So as we're thinking about the essence of it, I've been thinking about is the, is the essence of the novel going to come down to like going to come down to which of the women end up with which of the men we've talked about. It's not about happiness, right? We've talked about it. It's finding the good, you know, kind of the parameters of what a good life is and how you carve out a good life for yourself and stuff like that. So I realize we've kind of talked about all this, but I'm also curious if, given those two, given those two perspectives, does it ultimately come down to how that shakes out as far as the relationships? Like, does the essence of the novel change based on which person Eleanor Marianne ends up with? Given what you're talking about, that it's not a traditional romantic novel; it's more mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, given the things we've talked about, does the essence change based on who they end up with? Do you, Karen, do you feel like we've already answered that or is that a fair question still? Well, I think we've, we've addressed it, but maybe just wording it that way um, can lead to a slightly different answer that ties some things together. I mean, I would just say that um, the essence is virtue and moderation, which is really the same thing. It's a diff- the two different words, but, you know, tr- 
classically speaking, virtue is the moderation between, you know, an excess and a deficiency. Mm. Um, and so everything in this, you know, what's virtuous in one set of circumstances may not be virtuous in another. Now that's not the same thing as relativism or situational ethics or anything like that. It's just it, because it's all within, within the parameters of morality. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, so what is, you know, the virtuous decision for Marianne is, turns out to be one thing and the virtuous decision, you know, and, and there are many decisions along the way, but, and the virtuous decision for Eleanor is another. And as Heidi keeps pointing out in this world, very seldom is the virtuous decision for a woman to not get married to someone who's going to provide for her. Um, that's just the reality that they live in. So I think the essence of the novel is virtue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to answer your question, then in terms of particulars, because I think Karen's exactly right that in terms of the universals, these, these novels are not necessarily meant to be just love stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's way more at stake there, as we all agree. Um, but in terms of the particulars, yes, absolutely. Who each person marries at the end is essential because that's their reward for their virtue. Like that's how we know that they got that. That's how we know that the story has a happy ending, right? Is that they end up with the guy that they like and that they have enough to live on and that they have access, mm-hmm. they have these relationships and that they have like a stable place to live and that they are firmly established within the parameters of their world for the future. So, someone, I, I'm, uh, uh, hmm. <laughs> that's their happily ever after. <clears throat> yeah. I'm, I'm and thinking- I do, and, and Marianne, I mean, I, I guess at this point we're just kind of not, we're sort of giving some things away or whatever. Yeah. But so, so, yeah. we're Eleanor, far enough along. <laughs> Ele, right. Eleanor ends up with the, the man that she wanted all along. Um, and, and she's been virtuous. So that suggests that her judgment obviously has been better all along, even though he turns out to, you know, have a little bit of a history and some flaws. And then Mary Ann ends up with the man that is right for her and that she does end up wanting, but it's a complete reversal from, you know, her previous understanding and position. Um, so I'm not sure where I was going with that, but, but yeah, so we, we see that, you know, Marianne is a character who needed to, you know, uh, needed to have a change of mind and a change of perspective, um, in order to make that virtuous decision. Well, it's a great point because, because she had this reversal, Mm -hmm. she's brought even further because she completes her arc of virtue and then she ends up with the man that she should be with. Right. And that, and so it's important that Marianne doesn't end up with Willoughby, that he doesn't get reformed and and that that wouldn't fit the novel. Right. Right. Yeah. Would it fit the novel though? Do you think hypothetically speaking, which is kind of, you know, it's, I guess impossible to think this way, but, but had she made some sort of, bad decision along the way and not been virtuous and ended up with him, would that have fitted the essence of the novel? I don't know because I don't know. Turning it into more of a tragedy. Right. That it, that wouldn't be very Austinian. Like I, I, I don't want to say I reject the premise of your question, but it it is. (laughs) But you reject the premise of the question. Fine. Well, (laughs) the idea, I mean, she's not, there are other novelists who do that, right? Who kind of explore mm-hmm. the, the the trajectory of a fallen woman and how mm-hmm. she is restored, whether or not she can be restored to virtue within a hierarchical society. Like that's that's a pretty common theme. That's just not an mm-hmm. Austenian theme. So you reject the I, you reject the term. That's fine. I get it. I well, <laughs> it's, I do. <laughs> it's a fair. It's a good story. That's a good story. Right. But that's but just not, not yeah. a story that Austen. Would necessarily tell. Well, so the reason I asked that though is because you're talking about the, the idea of virtue and that that ultimately, you know, their virtue is what sort of determine their virtue or lack thereof is going to determine who they end up with, sort of. So I guess that's mm-hmm. why I asked: Would that be in keeping? Would that be consistent with what you're arguing? Right. In terms of getting Victor, their just desserts, so to speak. Right. Well, and that's Eliza, right? The the, the fallen woman in the novel. She. She is up having a child and having to hide out in the country for the rest of her life, even whether she repents or not, because those are the terms of the society. And and again, Austin accepts those terms. 
So that, you know, and there's plenty of novelists who say, I reject that premise. I don't think that's the way it has to be, Mm -hmm. but not Austin. Which speaks to, you know, Karen talked about the idea of realism. It's interesting that she can both accept the terms and create it, make it realistic while also at the same time sort of offering bits of subversion within that Mm -hmm. construct. Right. Well, and if, and looking at Austin's novels, then I would say probably the most ambivalence that we get within the couple that, that tries to navigate that is Mr. Collins and Charlotte Lucas in Pride and Prejudice, in which she accepts the terms of the society without love and she's perfectly virtuous. And so then she gets married to this fool and buffoon. And then that has, you know, engendered thousands and thousands of conversations on whether or not she did some a good thing by doing that. And we also have, uh, we do have a, the fallen woman in, in um, Lydia. Mm-hmm, that's right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And she, you know, she ends up being sort of rescued, but she does end up with the, with the villain. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not, you know, she gets her just desserts, I guess. Right. Karen, I don't know if you know this, but I have a six month old, she just turned seven month old daughter and we named her Lydia. And I had someone ask me recently, you didn't name her after Lydia in Pride and Prejudice, did you? It's like, no. <laughs> Have you read the book? Oh, wow. No, no, I, we did not. No. <laughs> I would not do that to her. I'm glad you cleared that up. Yeah, yeah. Publicly, I want to state that, that my mm-hmm. daughter Lydia is not named after that Lydia. Um, <laughs> well, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, we've, gone, we've gone our hour here. Do you have any final thoughts, either of you, as you look towards the, the third volume of the book? Any themes that you think people should look out for? Any scenes that you love? Any, you know, any moments or lines or anything like that? How do you let you go first? And then I'll turn to Karen. Yeah, I was thinking this week, uh, just a, a, a note on the Austin's craft. I really like how she doesn't introduce any characters that don't have some kind of purpose within the novel. I've been noticing that lately. And so um, there's a couple of new characters that are introduced. You know, Robert Ferris, for example, is my primary one. Um, that you're not quite sure why he's there, um, but he, it comes around, right? And so I was noticing how tightly constructed this novel is in terms of uh, there's lots and lots of characters in this novel, but all of them serve a purpose mm-hmm. to bring to fulfillment that, you know, the denouement as we get to the end. Mm-hmm. Karen? Yeah, I'll just, I'll make an observation about um, setting and structure kind of um, as, as I was preparing for this session today and we were talking you were giving the summary i was thinking i was glad that you gave the summary because volume two is i i think if i had to just pick one word it would be chaotic it's sort of chaotic yeah mm-hmm. um but it's also fitting because this is in london this is in the city and there is a lot of chaos that's occurring in the characters lives mm. and but it's bookended by the country life mm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, volume. So in volume three, I think I'm not sure if it's exactly in the beginning, but you know, but we return um, to the country setting, and it is mm-hmm. calmer and more mm-hmm. unified. And so, um, so I, I just I would encourage people to pay attention to those kinds of things. Like if something seems chaotic and disorganized, well, it could be lack of skill on the part of the author, <laughs> um, or it could it could be it matches what's going on, or it could be a combination of you know whatever we talked about. How this is novel is you know is an earlier work of Austin's and shows it, um, but um, form and function often go together, and so it's helpful I think to think about those things as we read. I was I made a joke about it earlier, but I was thinking about how much how much chaos sort of hap- how how chaotic this section is, as you said, and how much happens given that people say that nothing happens. You know, it's just like a couple con- series of conversations. Even the drama with with Willoughby, it all happens off screen. It's all just being relayed right. by Brandon in a conversation. Right. The drama, almost none of the drama actually happens on stage. And yet it's right. so chaotic and and there's so much that is going on and there's so much going on in the in the heads and in the minds and in the hearts of the characters that it it in some ways I wouldn't call it page turner, but it's you know, it's not like um it's, it's not like you're uh <laughs> it's not like you're reading in the middle of uh, Moby Dick there for a while. <laughs> right? It's not about like wailing or the, yeah. the lame is descriptions of the sewer system in Paris. <laughs> no offense to people it's who are really like into that. whaling. And I love Moby Dick, but you know. Um, I, one of my favorite lines happens at, in, um, 
in stand of 14. I think it's probably my favorite Eleanor line of the whole book. And it's where she's talking to Edward. I, th- I think it's, I think it's Edward. And, um, no, it's John. I think it's John. But he, but she says, Eleanor agreed to it all for she did not think he deserved the compliment of rational opposition. Yep. <laughs> I feel like that line at the end of the volume two sets up the, uh, the rest of the book really nicely. That's just a classic Jane Austen, you know, bit where she drops that one line in there and it, it's, it's funny and clever, but it also does seem to move things forward and keeps us really, really centered in terms of who this character is. Mm-hmm. Um, and thanks to you both so much. Um, these conversations have been really fun and, um, you know, uh, we haven't really focused as much on the, the the formal aspects as I thought we would. So, Karen, I'm glad you mentioned that. If you ever want to bring that up in the middle of a show, you can say, "Let's stop and talk about this," because um, <laughs> okay. you know Austin is good at that. Obviously, um, to everyone who's listening, don't forget you can join the conversation. As I said earlier, you can go uh, onto Facebook and search the Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group. Lots of conversation on there. There's been um, some conversation here and there on Instagram as well. You can. Find us at Close Reads Pods over on Instagram. And if you want to send in a comment or an e- or a question or something like that, you can email us at Close Reads Pods Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks also to Escondido and Fritz Henrichs for, for sponsoring. Don't forget you can learn about his courses at gbt.org. Karen, before you go, what are some things that you're working on that you'd like us to know about? Well, I Anything actually you want to plug? Coincidentally, I am <laughs> working on um, an introduction to Sense and Sensibility. Maybe we talked about this a few episodes ago, but um, for uh, for BH Publishing, which is uh, uh, part of Lifeway, and um, that actually should be out next spring with the companion mm. volume of Heart of Darkness. Um, I'll be doing a six volume six volume series of introductions to reprinted classic works of literature and so um i it's been great to have this discussion and you know just kind of get keep the brain turning and uh, how i can introduce this work in in far fewer words than we're we're expressing here um but that's what i'm i'm working on this summer how long is how long is that intro i mean how long do you have how many boards um they i I just finished my first draft and it's um it'll probably be about six thousand words um so So you have to distill it you have to distill everything yeah. down into six hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I'll have discussion questions and maybe some notes, but basically, it, it really is an introduction. Yeah, um, yeah. And boy, I was surprised at how fast six thousand words went. <laughs> so, are you revising now? Um, I um, my editor has it, and I will. Okay. I had to put it. Uh, yeah, and so I'll get back to it, but I have to put distance. And so now I'm going to yeah. work on the discussion questions. So okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Helpful. Do you find the discussion questions? I mean, people can can tune out now. I'm curious if you find the discussion questions. <laughs> is that an easy process for you to to narrow those down, or I mean, because you've taught the book and you have all this this research that you've done over the years, or do you find that that narrowing that down and focusing in on what questions to ask is painstaking? Well, I have. I'm just starting that, and for it's easy for me in class when I'm teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I think this will be a little harder because there are so many that I could ask. I still have to decide if I'm going to do it chapter by chapter or just mm-hmm. you know keep it keep them broader. So it, it it is easy for me to come up with discussion questions, but it'll just be a matter of you know how many to have and how which ones to throw out. That will be mm-hmm. hard. Yeah, I imagine in a classroom you have the benefit of responding to the needs in the moment. So right, exactly, exactly. And so, seeing where kids are paying attention and right, they're falling right. asleep and which kids need help. And, and, and what's happened in what what's happened in the news that week because I it's so amazing oh, yeah, how yeah. often these works of literature tie directly into things that are happening, you know, in our world today. And I, I yeah. like to try to make those connections for students as well. Hmm. Heidi, what are you working on? What do you want to plug? We have a summer edition of Forma coming out pretty soon here. We're all working hard, getting ready for the national conference. Oh yeah, I'm doing that too. I'm getting <laughs> ready. I'm so excited to meet you in person. It's going to be so fun. Um, and yeah, that's that's what that's what we're hard at work on these days. Hmm. Well, a million I, uh, podcasts to record. We've got a great lineup for the Forma podcast coming up. I won't give any spoilers, but. There are some people doing really, really good work in the so world, saying, and we're going to talk to them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Subscribe to Forma. 
Karen, I should warn you though, we both, Katie and I both just recently came home to tri- from trips to um, water damaged floors. So you, there may be a podcast curse. So oh, you may want to just turn okay. all your water off when you're out of town. <laughs> or you might have to actually call an insurance company and act like a real grown up. And that is hard work. I'm not wow. a fan. <laughs> well, thanks to you both. Um, this, like I said, this has been really fun. Uh, Karen, I appreciate that you've taken the time away from your from your summer vacation to to talk about books with us when you do that the whole year long. So hopefully it's at least been a little bit of enjoyment for you. Oh, no, it has been very... I love it. So thank you. Great. All right. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, we will be back next week to discuss the first seven chapters of Volume 3. So uh, get ready for that. Remember, you can join the conversation, as I said, for Heidi White, for Karen Swallow-Prior, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Happy reading. Mm-hmm.